Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. All right, well done. First Peter chapter 1, we read this morning, verses 1 and 2. This evening, I want to begin with verse 3 through 6. And I'm entitling the message this evening, A Joyous Salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope, a lively hope, I beg your pardon, to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Shall we pray? We thank you, Lord, for these who have come this evening, who have shared together and this evening hour of worship. We don't know the needs of every heart. But our Father, we pray that as we wait before you, the power of your Spirit would be upon us. You would fill us afresh and anew from on high. If there's anyone here this evening that is not a Christian, who's never given themselves to you, we would pray that tonight would be the time of that decision. For those of us, our Father, who are Christian, we come tonight to praise your name and ask that you would fill us afresh, that we could go forth in your name, feeling that it has been good to be in your house tonight. This we pray through Christ our Redeemer. Amen. I'm glad that there was a time that God saw fit to save me. But it was done because of a supreme love that he has for me. And I think you can say the same thing. We're saved by the mercy of God. Not because of anything that we are or ever will be. But we all know that we're saved simply because of the love of God. Because of that. We come Sunday after Sunday, hopefully for one purpose, and that is to actually praise God for what he has done in our lives. The King James uses the word blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some other translations use the word praise, and it fits well. Praise God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a little song that we call the doxology that says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And that's what we're about. That which we do ought to praise the Lord. I thought it was very appropriate that Doran put in the bulletin this morning the little thing that she did down at the bottom. Because it fits well the, the point that I want to make. when It says sometimes we worship the God of our experience instead of experiencing the God of our worship. That's a tremendous statement. As I sat down this afternoon to go over my notes again for tonight, I started going through my mind and I thought, where did I see that statement? And then I remembered it was in the bulletin. Because the, the God of our experience may not necessarily be Jehovah. For it is not enough to say that we believe in God. There are multitudes of people who believe in God, but not the God that I believe in. Or you. That group of people at Moundsville, the High Krishna community, believe in God, but it's not my God. They believe in salvation, but it's not the salvation that I've been taught from my youth up. And so it is not necessarily that we should worship a God, but rather that we should experience something. And as we leave church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, we should have had an experience that causes us to praise God. Because that's what we're about. But he says, praise the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an easy phrase to say, Lord Jesus Christ. Is that all there is? It's just a, a series of titles and names put together to identify the one who is the Son of God. You break it down, look at, look at the three words. First of all, look at the middle word, Jesus. That was his earthly name. When the angel appeared to Mary and appeared to Joseph and announced that they were going to have a child, they were told, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus is the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. And it means Savior. But he doesn't just stop with using the earthly name of our Savior, he calls him the Christ. The Christ, a title, not a proper name, meaning the Messiah, meaning the Savior. 
And so it is Jesus born upon earth who is the Savior from God above, but he uses another word. He begins with Lord. Now here we begin to draw the line. There are a few people who do not believe that there was a historical Jesus. There are fewer, but yet many people who believe and accept the fact that this Jesus was the Christ. But to call him my Lord? That's a different story. To identify him as a person is easy, but to declare allegiance to him is deeper than sometimes we want to get. One should never say, Lord, unless one is meaning that we are putting ourselves in his dominion, that he is our master, that he is the head of our life, the controller of our being. And this sometimes is more difficult to do. It's easy for us to say, Lord Jesus, but we'd be more proper most of the time just to say Jesus, because oftentimes we really do not mean Lord. But that he must be. If he's going to be our Savior, he must as well be Lord. But he identifies the Lord Jesus as one who has abundant mercy. Thomas said, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And I knew that verse by heart. And I read it over in my notes last night, and I thought, I have misquoted. Surely he did not say merciful twice in the same verse. So I turned back to Psalm 103, verse 8, and I read it again. This afternoon, I turned back and I read it again, and it's still there. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He puts it in there twice to emphasize the attitude of our Father and of our Savior toward all mankind, but certainly toward us. And he says he's not only merciful and gracious, but he is slow to anger. Now, he did not say he will not get angry. He simply said he is slow to become angry. Jesus is known as, uh, and was known on, in his earthly ministry as a peaceful man. But we remember that he went into the temple and he took a whip and in anger he drove out the money changers because they had turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Yes, he can become angry. Our father is slow to anger, but he can become angry. He spent all of those years trying to woo the Old Testament people, and they were becoming sinful more and more to the place that there was only Noah and his sons and their wives that were left that were righteous, just eight. God destroyed the world. He was slow. 
but he finally brought his anger to bear. He was slow to anger against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and even against Lot and his family, but his patience was finally exhausted with their continual sin, and finally he rained down fire and brimstone out of heaven and destroyed those cities and nearly Lot and some of his family they did destroy and nearly Lot because of his anger. We can flaunt our lives in front of God knowing that he is slow to become angry with us. But what I'm saying is there is a point in his uh, attitude in which he will say enough is enough. And I won't tolerate this any longer. I cannot imagine our father being as patient as he is with the United States today. He must be extremely slow to anger to allow this nation to go down the immoral road that it's going. To see the corruption that we have on every hand in government and in church and in society in general and not come down with his wrath upon the church and upon our country and simply take us out of this world if we cannot live for him, but he's slow. He hasn't done it yet. But there is an exhausting point to which we can drive the eternal father, and we find it well documented throughout the scripture. So we have praise to God the Father, who is the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who is abundantly merciful, and has done something, has begotten us again. There are two things that I think I see in that, begotten us again. Number one, the very fact that we're here is because of God. God is the author of our life. We may think that we create life, but we don't. We're simply instruments in the hand of God to produce life. Every person born in this world is born because of the will of God, not because of man's will. Therefore, I believe that every life is precious in God's sight, and we certainly should treat it that way. But the point that we have here is that God has begotten us again. There is another birth that he's referring to besides our initial physical birth. You and I have nothing to do with being born the first time, but we have a lot to do with being born the second time. Because we can choose to be born or not to be born the second round. Nicodemus didn't understand when Jesus was talking to him about spiritual things. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand. Can a man enter the, his mother's womb and be born again? In response to Jesus' statement, you must be born again. Can he? Well, the 23rd verse of this very chapter of 1 Peter says that being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. When we were born the first time, we were born of corruptible seed. All of us will die. Our bodies will deteriorate and we will go to the grave. The second birth is incorruptible. 
I take a little bit of delight in pointing out the verses that I find in the scripture that refer to uh, eternal security. That is, once you're saved, always saved. And here's another one. Here is another verse. The second birth were born of incorruptible seed. Did you see that? Seed that will not deteriorate. A person once saved by this verse and many, many other verses uh, will never die, will never cease to be because we are born the second time of a process that is not corruptible. We don't need to ask how old are you when it comes to how old are you spiritually because it makes no difference. We're never going to die, so what makes a difference how old we are? Some of us are older than others spiritually. But those of you who are the oldest as far as your Christian life is concerned are very, very young. Very young. Why? Because you'll never die. What are you comparing your age to when there is no end in sight? None at all. Never will be. So, we are born again of incorruptible seed. And then he says we have a lively hope. That's the Greek for lively hope, which I can't pronounce and long since forgotten the Greek word. But it simply means having a favorable, confident expectation. Having a favorable, confident expectation. Expectation of what? And the next word gets it, of the resurrection. Next Sunday, we're going to be preaching about the resurrection. And the whole day, we'll be dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This act that we celebrate next Sunday is the very single act all that we do or believe that separates Christianity from any other religion in the world. There have been many people, leaders of groups who have died around whom a religion has formed. Muhammad, for example, around whom Muhammadism developed. And on and on we could go with, with those relationships. But the fact is, every one of those religious leaders died, and not a single one of them ever resurrected. Never. The leader that we follow, the person we call the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord, a man named Jesus who was born in Nazareth, that individual died also, but he came forth from the grave. And it's irrefutable. The evidence is too strong. Any court in any land would have to agree that the evidence presented in the scripture to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is factual and would hold up in any court in the land. There were too many people who could testify to the experience to ever have it challenged. 500 at one time. 
plus the other different times of, of evidence when he was seen alive after he was dead. We serve a risen Savior, not a dead Savior. When Peter went to the tomb, he looked in and it was empty because the Lord had overcome death. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians. I think we need to emphasize a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You've read it many times, but let's do it again. It makes the, the bottom line of the doctrine that we preach so very, very clear, at least to me. Beginning at verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. There is no point in this church existing if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave. No point. If we do not preach Jesus Christ arose from the grave, we reduce ourselves to another organization in the midst of multitudes of organizations. We're no more church than any other, any social group, any club, any organization that we might belong to. And that's exactly what many people have done to the church, has reduced it to another organization and put it in the list of things that people belong to. And when the obituaries are written, he belonged to all of these various organizations, and in the midst of them was the church listed. That's one of the most shameful things that I see when it comes to the obituary of any person, that the church has been reduced to an organization. The church exists only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that has not happened, for 30-some years I've been preaching in vain. And Bill, you're preaching. You might as well stop now. There's no use starting if we don't have something to hang our hats on, to hang our faith on, to believe in, called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. Verse 20. So we'll not read it all. Now is Christ risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that sleep. Christ is risen from the dead, and he is the first one to do so. The first one. But notice, first fruits means there's going to be more fruit. When you pick the first ripe tomato in the garden, you expect more ripe tomatoes. Jesus was the first one, the first resurrected person, meaning there's going to be more. And it's the church that's going to resurrect. The day is going to come when there will no longer be a church on this earth and the graves of the people who uh, died, who are Christian, will be, of course, open and they will all come out to go to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus is the first fruit, but there will be others. Verse 23, Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his appearing. I think those verses, and particularly verse 14, uh, must be known and remembered and read very, very frequently and kept in mind 
The purpose of the church is to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to worship the Lord of the resurrection. That's what we're about. All right, let's go on. <clears throat> we notice in verse 4 that we're going to resurrect, as we have said in verse 3, to an inheritance. Resurrect, we're going to die, and then we're going to resurrect, and after we have resurrected, we're going to get an inheritance. Now that seems a little bit awkward. Usually somebody dies and the people that are left get the inheritance. In this case, a person's got to die to get his own inheritance. Did you know that? You're not going to get your inheritance until you die. But you're not going to stay dead because you're going to be in heaven. And the resurrection people will get the inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled, it does not fade away, and notice it is reserved in heaven for you. My inheritance is already in the bank. Just waiting for me to die to claim my inheritance. And if you look at it in those terms, to live on earth is a ridiculous thing. We ought to be glad to be going. In order that we can obtain that which has been put on reserve for us in heaven. Now, verse 5, he says about us that we are kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. I want you to stretch your minds now. And if you do it, together we will discover that there is little value in our being overly concerned about our lives here upon earth. That makes the difference what happens to us. Because we're in the power of God. We're kept by His power. We're shielded. We could use the word very easily, shielded by the power of God. The Secret Service place themselves around the President. They shield the President of the United States with their own body. And you remember when uh, the President was shot, whenever that was now, three years ago, I guess. You remember seeing the news clip, you saw that Secret Service man throw his body in front of the president to protect him. What I'm saying to you is the Lord God throws his body in front of us to protect us. He surrounds us completely. The story is told of a preacher back in the days when they rode horses to preach. And this particular preacher was going down the highway on his horse and some Robbers were lurking around the bend, saw him coming, and were intending to, to jump on him and rob him. But when the preacher got up to where they were, 
They sat there still on their horses and didn't make a move. And the preacher rode on, never knowing that there lurked in the shadows robbers on horseback ready to pounce upon him. And these robbers had to report to their boss. And they came back empty-handed. He asked them, why did you not rob the man? And the robbers said, had you seen those big guys around him on horseback, you wouldn't have robbed him either. God had surrounded him with his own angels to protect his servant. How many times have you and I had the angels of God surrounding us and the devil could not get to us and we were never even aware that it happened? Never aware. I think I believe in guardian angels. I say I think I believe in them because I'm not I haven't really settled in my own mind just exactly what all that might mean. But I do know this one thing, that the Lord God certainly puts somebody to protect me at times. And I know he does you as well. And that's why I think we need to say praise God from whom all blessings flow. Even when we don't know it's happening, he's there. He's there by the bedside when we're ill. And we are standing there by the bedside of our, of our loved ones and friends. That little cartoon that we have in the paper uh, sometimes depicts it well when there is that unseen image that's there protecting. And this is God. Who are kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed the last time. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Take the shield of faith which you, with which you can quench all the fiery darts of the devil. Now listen to that. That's what the Lord said. Take the shield of faith. Grab it in your hand and hold it. Then let the devil throw all the darts that he wants at you. They'll bounce off that shield. They won't get to you. Because you have your shield of faith, it's protecting you from the devil and all that he wants to throw. Drop your shield and the arrows will sink deep. Put up your shield. God will protect you. Then lastly, from which I got the title, verse 6, wherein we greatly rejoice. Salvation is a joyful thing. Rejoicing is, is the act of expressing joy. Joy over what we have. What do we have? Our salvation. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing, and it has the words in it, Happy am I. I cannot imagine a, a Christian 
not being happy. Now, I can imagine a Christian having experiences that are not joyful and delightful, but in the Lord. I cannot imagine a Christian not expressing happiness over his salvation. Do you ever regret that you're saved? Would you desire to do something different? Would you like to go back to the way you were? before the Lord performed a miracle in your life, I don't think that we would. We can say, I've been redeemed, and I want to stay that way. I don't want to go back to my old life. There's something in having faith in God that is so important to us that we would never want to leave it or lose it. It's there. It gives us comfort in times of need. We know because of it that we're on our way to heaven. And we can sing, I'm saved, saved, saved. And it means something to us. And so in the middle of our trials, we have them. In the middle of the tests that are placed upon us, we have them. In the middle of our difficulties, and a Christian is no uh, exception, just because we're Christian does not mean that we won't have the problems of life. Sometimes people have misunderstood that. But because we have them in the midst of our trials, we have a resource, a reserve to call upon. It's called the grace of God. We can depend upon in those times of need. And the trials will, will come, but they will simply prove that we have up our shield. The trials will come, but it will prove that we have strength. We can hold up that shield in front of us. We ought to really be glad that we have trials because it strengthens us. Praise God, who is the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who had mercy upon us and gave us a second birth. And we can take satisfaction in it because we know that he resurrected and the day will come when we will resurrect. And there is already on reserve for us our inheritance. Hold up that shield and let the devil do his worst. God is around us. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.